Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. How you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, 2023. Yep. One of the nice things about the holidays is I had a little bit more time, and I listened to last week's show. I really loved the interviews. Um, the one with Hugo Soto Martinez, the new incoming council member in Los Angeles, was, I thought, really insightful. I'm glad he's on the, on the council now. It's very exciting. And, you know, we also did the interview with, with LCI, Lindsay Sturman, and, you know, she talks a lot about, about housing and about how, you know, we need housing on our commercial corridors. On today's show, we have three really good interviews. The first interview is with Joe Linton. Joe's been involved in bicycle advocacy and urbanism in Los Angeles for 20, 25 years at least. You know, he was one of the founders of the LA CBC, which is now Bike LA. And he was one of the founders of Ciclavia. And he's now the editor of Streets Blog LA. And he's just a, a huge wealth of information about the world of biking. And, and I was really glad to get a chance to sit down and talk to him. And you also had one with the Boston Bike Mayor. Vivian Ortiz and Galen Mook, the executive director of the Massachusetts Bike Coalition. They talked about what it's like to be bike mayor. Does Los Angeles have a bike mayor? <laughs> I want to be the bike mayor. <laughs> I can't. Listen to this interview before you throw your hat in the ring. Okay, I will. Our third interview is with uh, Ruthie Woodring of Pedal People in, in Northampton. She's shipping bikes to Haiti now. Wow. And it's pretty complicated, but it's a great interview. I look forward to it. Let's get started. I'm here today with probably the one guy who knows more about what's going on in Los Angeles transportation than anybody, probably even than the director of transportation for the Department of Transportation, Joe Linton. Joe, welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks for having me, Taylor. I'm sure you've been a guest many times over the years. Yeah. Joe is the editor of Streets Blog, correct? Yeah, I'm the editor of Streets Blog Los Angeles since 2014. And I got to tell you, that's the second place I go on the internet every morning. I start with the New York Times, and then I go to Streets Blog, and then I go to the LA Times after that. Cool. So what are the big stories on Streets Blog right now? Well, when city council candidates pledge to do new bike lanes and bus lanes and whatnot, I tend to welcome them by doing a piece about actionable transportation items in their district. So I talk to some local advocates and go through the city's mobility plan and go through the streets on Google Maps and come up with a list of mostly low-hanging fruit. There's a few places like Culver City where big main streets have really been taken on in prominent ways. This is project like Moot, Culver City that did bike lanes and right. bus and lanes. Bus- in the city of LA, we're sort of in the low-hanging fruit phase. We put these facilities where they fit more than where they're really most needed. And I'm not totally opposed to that, but I try to not look at high-in-the-sky recommendations. I try to look at where's there enough space and based on past approvals and current needs, what makes sense. There's actually three new city council members that just took office this week as we're talking. CD5, CD13. Yeah, so CD5, Katie Young Yaroslavsky, CD13, which is where I live, Hugo Soto Martinez, and then Eonisis Hernandez is in Councilor District 1, who won the primary back in June, but didn't take office until this week. And all three of them have pledged to make LA a more walkable, bikeable, transit-friendly city. And I think they're going to do great things. 
I'm actually really excited. I think well, yeah, with yeah, Nithya Raman, there's a real growing cadre on the council that are very supportive of bike projects. Right. I'm in CD5, which was Paul Koretz and which is now Katie Young, Yurovslavsky. And I supported Katie very much. One of the litmus tests that a lot of safe street advocates used with Katie was, would she have supported Uplift Melrose? And she, of course, said yes. And I don't know if you remember what Uplift Melrose oh, was, yeah. but Paul Koretz famously said, I drove down Melrose and I decided this shouldn't be changed. And it's like, oh my God, did you drive down the stretch of Melrose where I live, which is wall-to-wall cars and not a fun place to walk or shop really anymore because it's so crowded with cars and not with people. So we're really glad that Katie's in. What do you see happening with these three or four council members? What's going to be the big change, do you think, in the coming year? Well, I think there's both non-negative effects and positive effects. So the council members like Karatz and Cedillo and O'Farrell and Rue, all gone, thank goodness. The city would do restriping of streets when it repaves the street. And when there's an easy bike lane project, they generally would do it. But a bunch of these anti-bike council members said, no, I don't want these. So in districts, especially Cedillo, but in all of those, there are very easy, pain-free, meaning you don't have to remove any parking, you don't have to remove any car lanes, right. bike projects that just waited and never got done. So I think just having council members who aren't hostile to bicycling will mean that the city will automatically do some low-hanging fruit projects. But then I think there are big projects that are positive projects that are things like bus lanes approved in the mobility plan, projects like Sunset for All, doing two-way protected bike lanes on Sunset through much of the eastern part of Hollywood, Silver Lake, Echo Park. So I think it's hard to say what those will look like. Well, I think, too, Hugo Soto Martinez called for closing parts of Sunset Boulevard, making it all pedestrian. And I expect that would be shared with slow moving bikes. There was a consultant, a guy named Ian Lockwood, who's awesome, (laughs) I think is still around, who said to me, gosh, decades ago on an L.A. River bike path project, he said, what L.A. needs is bike ped conflict. (laughs) Having spaces where there's no cars, where there's slow moving bikes and pedestrians would be awesome for Los Angeles. And I think there's a good possibility that that base will happen on Hollywood Boulevard. Could be 100% permanent. It could also be sort of summer streets. It could be from June through September, from Thursday through Sunday, there's no cars on Sunset Boulevard. And it's awesome, sort of like a Ciclavia that takes place. So we'll see. New York kind of does that. Yeah. Ciclavia is going to be doing eight events this year. What I'm hoping is instead of sort of eight events, it's eight months or eight weeks or something and not eight days. I've always felt like with Ciclavia that we should get to the point where it's not special where it's not a big deal that it's Ciclavia this Sunday. It's the third or the fourth Sunday of the month, and that means streets are closed to cars. Yeah, well, Bogota does it every Sunday, and Guadalajara, Mexico City, lots of places do extensive routes once a week. Medellin does it, I believe, Sundays and Tuesday afternoons and Thursday afternoons. (laughs) So we could be doing it multiple times a week. It could be just like, oh, I'm going to church today. Okay, well, I'm going to take the bike. It's the regular day that the street is safe. And how great would it be if a weekday afternoon and you could then on that day ride your bike to work if you were a non-regular bike commuter or go to the farmer's market or the store? Yeah, I think Hollywood Boulevard, some people have said something along the effect of Hollywood Boulevard sees 5 million tourists who spend an average of 15 minutes on the street. (laughs) 
I don't want to be too mean, but it's an armpit. And I think making it not car drenched is what could make it a real place that would welcome tourists and locals and give it the life it deserves. Right. Well, didn't Mitchell Farrell, the former council member from CD13, he actually put out a plan to change Hollywood Boulevard at one point. I don't know if he was very staunch behind it or not. Yeah. And there's some metro money behind it. And I think Hugo Soto Martinez needs to look at the alternatives that O'Farrell turned down. There were possibilities for protected bike lanes that O'Farrell yanked from the plan. The plan, it would be like planting trees and redoing sidewalks and actually bike lanes in some parts of Hollywood Boulevard, not protected. But I think it would leave in place lots of parking, lots of cars. It's really expensive with very little benefit for walking and biking. And my vision, (laughs) you know, I'm a guy with a blog, so everybody (laughs) listens to my vision, right? But my vision is massive sidewalks and a bus going through the middle of the space, a bus only lane. And then those sidewalk spaces would be shared with cyclists. I think we can really transform it. And yeah, some of the businesses are like, when are we going to do deliveries? And it's going to be some arrangement where businesses that would lose some car access would gain a delivery window in the morning or something like that. I mean, there's a bunch of ways to do it, but leaving it car drenched isn't a good one. (laughs) That just seems like a half measure to me. Half measures just don't work in this kind of environment. We need to make full changes. Yeah, I think Culver City shows a real example. You can have a mix that Mm -hmm. drivers can use, that pedestrians can use, that cyclists can use, that transit riders can use. But I think once you turn over 90% of your real estate to drivers and then try to spruce up the remaining 10% for people on foot, and you're forced into really crappy designs. And that's what O'Farrell wanted for Hollywood Boulevard, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize that he had pulled away the protected bike lanes and things like that. Yeah, they were in the early alternatives, and then they're not in the final design. As you know, I was just in Europe. I was in Paris and Amsterdam and Barcelona. And I can't figure out why we have here in the United States such a hard time convincing people like Cedillo and Coretz and some store owners that it's actually a positive for the businesses when we remove some of the cars and we allow more space for people. Why do you think we have such a hard time with it? Is that it's so ingrained? Well, I have a bunch of answers. Let me go with a positive one first. So I worked on the first Ciclovia and the cafe owners were like, oh, I'm going to have to close that day because you're closing the street. And then the second Ciclovia, when we did outreach, they're like, oh, what day is it? We'll offer specials. We're going to staff up. That was our busiest day ever. They said that was a really busy day. So the bike thing coming. Okay, it's on Sunday. Got it. So I think that when you shut down a really inefficient mode, driving and parking, and you prop up efficient modes, walking, bicycling, and transit, you get more customers. And is the auto parts store going to get more customers? No. But are all the places that depend on foot traffic going to get more? Yes. The restaurants. So you've spent time in New York City, right? It's like, I think of the Trader Joe's in Silver Lake that I go to today, compared to the Trader Joe's in Chelsea that that I went to. (laughs) The Trader Joe's in Chelsea makes hand over fist more money than the one in Silver Lake does. And it doesn't have a parking lot. To pay for a parking lot. 
Exactly. It doesn't have to pay for a parking lot. And it has a half dozen staff members dedicated to managing lines of dollar paying customers, you know, (laughs) checking out. So I'm not saying ban cars everywhere in LA, but I'm saying where we can, we should look at great spaces like Hollywood Boulevard and how to better serve businesses there by bringing them great foot traffic. And that's what things like Ciclavia and car free street areas can really do. Right. And it's something where the business owners are going to say, no, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. And then on day 10, they're going to say, whoa, this is incredible. (laughs) You can't undo it. So it's hard. And our departments of transportation at the federal, state and local level have catered so much to driving and parking that drivers feel like they don't have options and are stuck in a super inefficient system. Some of them are never going to get out of their cars and that's okay. We don't need 100% of people to get out of their cars. But when a few people get a whiff of how great, think of Ciclavia, it's people smiling, people (laughs) looking in each other's eyes, all kinds of folks in Los Angeles. When you get a sense of how that really transforms space, then, then you support that. When I travel, I almost always do the bike share program in whatever city I'm in, whether it's Boulder, Colorado, or New York, or even in Europe. And it always worries me here that I see all these bikes in our bike share stalls. And I'm thinking that's because people just don't feel safe getting onto a bike share bike in LA where we don't really have the infrastructure to protect them. I mean, I'm a fairly confident cyclist, so I bike everywhere all the time. But someone who's just visiting Los Angeles or someone who is not a regular bike rider, I think it would be hard to get them on a bike share bike. Yeah. Well, I think a few things on that. Number one is you're absolutely right. If you don't have safe places to bike, your bike share is not going to be popular. The other thing, especially with dock bike share, you need walkability. You're going to dock that bike and you're going to walk five blocks to where you're going to go. And if those are five really awful pedestrian hostile blocks, you're not going to bike it. The, The story I tell on that is my family, we went to Barcelona over the summer and I said to my wife and daughter, we're going to rent bikes for one day and cruise around on bikes because we should do that. And they said, yeah, let's do it. Barcelona's got an old city with five to 10 foot wide streets where slow moving bikes and pedestrians share space. I mean, you know all this, but this is for your listeners. (laughs) And then it's got this great network of two-way protected bike lanes on a third of major streets, probably, in a network that pretty much takes you anywhere in the city. And so we rented bikes for one day. And this is my nine-year-old daughter, (laughs) who I bike a lot in LA with, but often on the sidewalk in places where it's too hairy. My wife and daughter said, oh, this is great. Let's have bikes all week because... This is the easy way to get around Barcelona and it feels safe. And I wasn't worried my daughter was going to get run over because there's a network of facilities that makes it safe. I'm just curious, were you using the bike share bikes or were you using Donkey Republic? We went to a bike shop that had bike rentals in Poblet New neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I've forgotten. I've mentioned it in the article (laughs) at Streetsblog, but we rented bikes for a day and then a week long rental. Well, what's so great about Barcelona also is now they have competing bike rental companies. I often rent one through a company called Donkey Republic, which is a pick it up anywhere, drop it off anywhere service. It's Uh just an app on your phone. And I bike all over Barcelona and really love it. And my wife is from there. And so we have a lot of friends that are her family's there. 
And it's interesting to hear people talk about it because a lot of the locals didn't like it at first. They were very angry because they made parking in the city center very difficult and expensive and getting in and out of the city tough on a car. But now that it's been there for five years, the locals are like, oh, well, this is great. The city's quieter. The city's calmer. The streets are safer. I don't need to get my car out of the parking lot to go 10 or 15 blocks to a friend's house or to a restaurant. I can easily comfortably walk or get on a bike and get there. So it takes time. There's a learning curve. Yeah. It seems like it was pretty quick. I mean, I'm not a Barcelona expert. I've been there once for 10 days. But a friend of ours who's been there for a decade and a half, maybe, she was saying that she never used to bike in Barcelona. And then a decade ago, the city started to add these bikeways and make the municipal bike share available. What's funny about Barcelona is it's got rail lines and subways and they come quick. There's a lot of great options, but it appears that bicycling was a priority of the city and that it's in somewhat recent years really given residents a new option. I think it's something where when the city is looking at bike share and where to add bike share, what would be great is that they kick off a new bike share. And by the way, we're going to put new bike lanes on these three streets at the same time. And so you can give people an easy option. You know, I bike everywhere and I use the train and the bus a lot. And we walk a lot in my neighborhood in Koreatown. But I do use Metro Bike Share. There's occasional times when I don't want to deal with my bike on the bus or something. And it's not that long a trip, but it's a little longer than I really want to walk. So I think it's great to have effective bike share as one option for people getting around. I think it's going to stutter in L.A. until we actually make streets bikeable and walkable. The key word that I've heard you say a couple of times is options. We just need options. Some people are going to drive all the time and that's totally fine. But some people can drive when they need to go a long distance or haul a bunch of stuff and other people can bike. I haven't driven to Trader Joe's since the days of radio. People need options. There are trade-offs. To do a bus lane, you got to take away some parking. To squeeze in bike lanes, you're going to have to reconfigure center turn lanes, stuff like that. There's certainly low-hanging fruit, like pain-free things that we can add. But to really make LA bikeable and to build a network, we're going to have to take away some space from driving and parking and turn that over to safe places to bike. That's where the fight comes in, right? Yeah. When people have to give something up. My guest today is Joe Linton, who, as I said at the beginning, probably knows more about Los Angeles urban development and street design and bikeability than anybody. You were on the Los Angeles Bicycle Advisory Committee for a long time. Like you said, you were involved in the first Ciclovia. So as 2022 comes to an end, I wonder if you can give us the top two or three things that happened to make LA streets safer this year, and then the top two or three, four negative things that have slowed the process in Los Angeles and turned the clock back. I'm just curious if we can get a year-end report card from you. Well, in terms of positives, I think that the city has, especially in the downtown area, done a lot of bike lanes and a lot of bus lanes. And we have a couple restaurants we go to. I bike with my daughter down 7th Street into downtown and go to the last bookstore and go to Pine and Crane and stuff like that. And there really is, in the downtown area especially, a network emerging that I feel comfortable riding with my family. So it still needs some work. There's still a lot of cars. There's not a lot of enforcement. There's drivers in the bike lanes sometimes. But I think that there is 
all too gradually <laughs> emergence of parts of the city that are really good for bicycling, especially downtown. I think, and I already alluded to this, but part of what's making that happen is turnover at Councilor Siguan. And Eunice Hernandez took office this week, but her challenge to Gilsadilla, the most stridently anti-bike council member out of multiple stridently anti-bike council members, just her winning election has allowed the DOT to put in a bunch of facilities that were on the books for years that gathered dust until she was elected. Even just the easy stuff is starting to happen a little faster in the light of elections. That's a couple of positives. I think Metro Transit is big. The options you spoke about. If you have a 20 mile trip or a five mile trip or a two mile trip, you should have different options you can choose. And I think that the Metro bus system is having a little trouble, but it's been restored. The COVID right, era right. cuts have been restored. So buses and also are talking about free transit fare, which is, I think, a big step forward. Yeah, I think that there are leaders, Holly Mitchell and Karen Bass, that have expressed their support for Metro enacting free transit like it had all during the pandemic. (laughs) But we'll see. That's a can of worms. Metro announced that it would be doing system-wide free transit. And then within a few months, it said, oh, it's only for students and only for certain school districts. My daughter took months for them to get the tap card to her school and then you had to activate it and then it stopped working. Metro should just say anyone under 12 or anyone under five feet tall can ride free in terms of doing a real student amusement park. If you're shorter than this, it's free. Well, Santa Cruz buses are like that. They have a tape on one of the poles. Okay, you're free because you're shorter than this. Leslie Uh, Jordan, the actor who just died, sadly, was a good friend (laughs) of mine and he would ride free. Yeah, it's frustrating that with all the talk of Fairless, that all Metro could do was an overly complicated, crappy rollout of a new student bus pass. We use it and it's not nothing, but calling it a Fairless pilot is overhyping it in a misleading way. That's one negative. What's another negative that maybe (laughs) turned the clock back a little bit this year? So I started this job as one of the founders of the Bike Coalition. I worked on the first Ciclovia. I was an LA River advocate who helped get the river bike path extended and whatnot. And I started this job as the bike guy. (laughs) And then when I started to see the way money works at Metro, especially under the Metro sales tax, but also under Caltrans influence at the state and federal money, what's harming transportation is freeway expansion. Metro is doing dozens of billion dollar plus projects to expand freeways. And that's what really sucks up money out of the room and tears down black and brown neighborhoods and pollutes the neighborhoods that remain. And I think as a bicyclist, the areas around freeways are places to bike. There's drivers gunning it onto off ramps and you're trying to navigate that. So it makes for hellish places to walk and bike. And this new bridge in Burbank where Caltrans deigned to put down bike lanes, but there's so much turning traffic and freeway volumes going on and off. Even though there are bike lanes, it's a hellish place to bike. All the bikes were biking on the sidewalk. So I started as the bike guy and I'm kind of the freeway guy (laughs) now in terms of reporting. 
Yeah, the anti-freeway. Yeah, exactly. So I think one of the really distressing things is Metro is just in a headlong pursuit of more and more wider and wider freeways, more and more car capacity. There was a report this year that basically said if they build out all their light rail and all their tiny percentage of first last mile bike and walk stuff, any greenhouse gas offset by that will be swamped by the amount of new greenhouse gases from the agency's freeway widening. So I've been a real critic of freeway widening. And what's kind of cool is that this year, Metro actually canceled the widening of the lower 710 freeway from East LA to Long Beach. Metro had been planning a $6 billion project to add two more lanes to the freeway that would have torn out hundreds of homes in Compton and Long Beach and a couple other cities along the freeway. And Really, the environmental justice advocates there, folks from what's called the Coalition for Environmental Health and Justice, fought this project for decades since 2000. And finally, this year, Metro and Caltrans canceled the project and are looking at a multimodal investment strategy for the corridor. And it only happened after their hands were caught in the cookie jar. Metro kept saying, oh, we're about to start construction. And I started digging on what's holding this project up. And I uncovered a memo from the Environmental Protection Agency that said that the project was illegal under the Clean Air Act. And Metro had buried that memo. And when Streetsblog published that memo within a month, the project was on hold. And then within a year, the project was canceled. I'm excited that I played a role in that. But I also don't want to underestimate the fact that the neighborhoods there, the coalition really fought that tooth and nail for decades. And I was able to help push it over the finish line that they had run a long marathon on. Well, one last question, Joe. Yeah. As we finish looking back on 22, what's the big thing to look forward <laughs> I'm still fighting this year's battle. What am I excited about in 23? Well, it's not all that bikey, but the downtown subway, there's a new thing called the regional connector that's going to open, that's going to tie together three different metro lines, the gold line and the blue line and the expo line. And so you're going to be able to do a one seat ride from East LA to Santa Monica and from Long Beach to Azusa. And I think it's one of those projects that you're almost not going to notice. There's not going to be a facility called the Regional Connector, but you're going to notice that your trips are faster and easier because you're not having to transfer and take multiple trains and stuff like that. So I think that'll be a real boon to the quality of life for folks who depend on Metro to get around. I can't think of a really bike-specific one. I'm just looking forward to great stuff in Katie Young-Yaroslavsky's and Inicius Hernandez and Hugo Soto-Martinez and Nithya Raman's district. A lot of the denser inner parts of the city that are places where bike trips are possible, that they're not that long. I think we're going to see gradual, positive bike network improvements in central parts of Los Angeles. Bike LA did a candidate bike ride around Westwood before the election. And Katie came and rode with some people from Bike LA and I was there. Sam Yerby did not come. And Katie said it was one of the few times she had been on a bike recently. And she got to experience what it's like to be on a bike. And I think if we can get more of our city council people on bikes riding around areas like UCLA campus in Westwood and get them to realize how uncomfortable it can be without the proper infrastructure, then you're right that we can really look for positive things coming out of CD5, CD13, CD1. 
Yeah. Well, I think they all pledged in their platforms and ran against folks who were really crappy on the issue. So getting them up on bikes is great and helps see that. Karen Bass was on a bike at a recent Ciclavia. And I think in some ways you can have politicians who are really good for bikes who don't necessarily ride a bike every day. But I think, yeah, getting them up on a bike helps them to see the real situation on the ground. Joe Linton, thank you very much for all you've done for LA over the past 25 years. Thanks for Streets Blog and thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Really quick, can you give us the web address of Streets Blog so our listeners can find it? Yeah. And Streets Blog is a national network. So if you're listening to this outside of LA, there may be one in your area too. But the website here is la.streetsblog.org. Is there a good place to follow you on Twitter or Instagram? I'm Joe Linton 63 at Instagram, although it's more like my daughter and I'm an artist. I post comics and stuff that I draw there. And then I tweet a lot at Streets Blog LA. I have a Twitter account that I haven't tweeted on since Elon Musk took over. (laughs) So you can follow me personally, but don't expect any fast response at, at Joe Linton at J-O-E-L-I-N-T-O-N on Twitter, but I tweet all day at Streets Blog LA. Joe Linton, thanks very much. Thank you, Taylor. That was an interview with Joe Linton by Taylor Nichols. Next, Galen Mook interviews Vivian Ortiz, the bike mayor of Boston. Miss Bike Mayor, I want to talk about your bike joy. My bike joy, gosh. I think that every time I'm on my bike, it's just immediate joy. But little things, like I was at a school the other day and um, not very happy because they didn't have proper bike facilities for me to park my bike. But in the end, it turned out to be beneficial because when I was leaving, um, my bike was locked to the fence and I was removing it and it happened to be there were some little ones out at recess Mm -hmm. and they ran over immediately. And I know a lot of it has to do with my cool ass looking bike, right? (laughs) So they just went on and on and on and on about, oh my God, your bike and all this stuff. And it was so joyful not to have anybody ask me, you ride in the winter? You ride in the street? Right. Are you crazy? They saw nothing of that. Mm. Absolutely nothing of that. And just talking to me about their helmets and, you know, I don't know if they were really all being 100% honest with me when we talked about helmets, but just those small little innocent moments that you don't expect are Mm. the ones that really, really bring me joy. That's so sweet. My Mm -hmm. heart is swelling hearing (laughs) that story. So... I love it. So, so for those of you listeners who are just tuning in, we are talking with Vivian Ortiz. She is Mattapan resident, but also throughout the city of Boston, the recently appointed bike mayor. It's already been two years. Two years? Yes. Well, it's been a hard two years. I'll tell you. It has been a hard two years. <laughs> so let's, um, I'm curious about what it means to be a bike mayor. Um, and, you know, what, what does it mean to you when you, when, when you kind of are, are talking to people and you say, hey, I'm the bike mayor of Boston, even though it's kind of not for nothing. It's kind of a made-up title. We've, as advocates, have, have made it up for you for a reason. It's it's not nothing. But no, no. So what what is? Well, I first found out about it. Um, hopefully, you guys have heard of Courtney Williams. Um, she is the brown bike girl in New York City. Oh, in Brooklyn, you right? And one day on Instagram, she's on there and she's got this sash across, and it says "People's Bike Mayor of New York City." And I was like, "What? You just decided to do that one day?" She goes, "No, it's a thing." And I was like, all right. And during the pandemic, she had done some really creative things to get the bike community together. So I was coming on to some of those events and things that she was doing. She's in Brooklyn alone and I'm here in Boston alone. So during the pandemic, we'd like kind of like we check in on each other. Oh, nice. And so um, soon I met Patty Baker, who's in Atlanta um, on one of those events. And then she is 
the metro the metro atlanta bike mirror she's actually just um, given it up but so i knew the two of them and then you and becca approached me and becca from the boston but, cyclist union yeah, from formerly from the boston cyclist and union. it's gonna from, be hard yep from mass bike <laughs> from I'll, mass bike i'll do some context yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. and um you all had had a conversation including stacy as well Livable Streets Alliance. Okay. You guys reached out to me and said, you know, hey, we think that you would be a great candidate for the bike mayor. And I was like, I can't do that. I have so much stuff going on because both Courtney and Patty um, were doing this full time. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I have a full time job. I have to be very careful with the advocacy part of what, you know, what I do. So um, I, I just don't know. And I remember Becca saying, and I'm like, and they do so much. They're so like out there and they're like, in the community and you know raising their fist and pissed off about stuff and becca was like no you can just do what you need to do what you've already been doing just keep doing it right yeah so mine is a little bit different um because my whole thing is trying to get more people on bikes um even though i'm very much an advocate and the advocate activist but but i want folks to try it out i want people in my neighborhood to try it out i want them to be able to see biking as a form of transportation and yep. not just something that if you have the opportunity and you have a vehicle that you could put it on the back of your vehicle and go to a safe place to be able to bike, mm-hmm. everyone should have the opportunity to travel however they want to in a safe manner. One of the things that I really like that you have been doing, the some things, is your 30 days of biking. Yeah. So let's. I want to talk about that for a minute. So that's in April. Yes. You go out and you say for every calendar day, I will ride my bike at least a little bit. Yeah. And you started doing this years ago, and I think we we used to have you on to talk about this. I think it was in 2016 because I learned mm-hmm. about it at the National Bike Summit. Cool. So these guys from Minneapolis were the ones. They, I remember they had a table there, and I can still remember the little blue sticker that they had. And it was like, what is this? And they're like, it's 30 days of biking. You ride your bike every day in April. It's just a personal challenge. It's not a count the miles. It's not that. It's just get out. And I was not riding in the cold at that point. Mm -hmm. So my bike was in the basement, and that's when I had the three-speed. And for those of you listening in California, it's cold in April here. So just going to throw that out there. Yeah, I love the challenge of it, and it's just a fun thing to do, right? But I wanted my neighbors to start to join me, right? And every year I'd be like, hey guys, it's 30 days of biking, come out. And they'd say, no, it's too cold, it's too cold. And I'm like, but then you're saying in the summertime, it's too hot, it's too hot. So I think it was in 2019 that I just decided, you know, let me see if there's another way to do this. Well, we don't need to have folks commit to doing this every day. So I decided to start having folks come out on Monday nights with me and just meet me in Mattapan Station. We had just gotten blue bikes in Mattapan. So I got in touch with the folks at Blue Bikes. I had been working with them, you know, on and off with different women's rides and things. And so I said, you know, I, I want I want my neighbors to be able to join me on these rides, but they don't have bikes. So, you know, they gave me passes. And then folks were like, oh, but I don't have a helmet. <laughs> so I was yeah. like, Blue Bike folks? They, you know, and so then I looked at my neighbors and I'm like, all right, I got you a bike and I got you a helmet. What's your next excuse? <laughs> and then it was like, you know, somebody, one person showed up. I still remember the the week that Charlotte Fleetwood um, came down from Roslindale 
and uh, she and I you. did this ride, and it was amazing because we've known each other for a long time, but mm-hmm. I don't think we'd ever actually ridden on the Neponset Trail. Mm-hmm. And it will also turned into, of course, like a, an infrastructure discussion. So there were some prod- some things along. I mean, the Neponset Trail belongs to DCR, but the intersections belong to the city of Boston. So Charlotte's uh, an employee of the city of Boston who does transportation advocacy and, and infrastructure work, and yeah. DCR is the state conservation and recreation. So there's not a lot of overlap, but they all like shared interests, right, I would say. Right. So it was like, hey, you know, this is an intersection that we've been trying to make safer for some time because as you can see, you know, there's nothing on here or whatever. And so we've got that now. You know, that the city has built a, a crosswalk at that intersection and stuff like that. This is the opportunity. This is a lot easier. The person is here. They can physically see it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be this like, well, let me try to explain it to you kind yeah. of thing. But um, yeah, so I started doing these Monday night rides and it was only going to be in April. Right. So it was a short commitment for folks to come. And what happened, you know, that last Monday in April, folks are like, that's it? <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, we can continue. Like, there was a whole little crew there. And some of these folks got much more confident yeah. that if a new person would come and join and, and they weren't ready to go over the canopy bridge on the incline at the beginning, it'd be like, you guys go ahead. I'm, I'm going to stay with this person. And then if that person or somebody would say, this is too far, I got to go back, I'd go back with them. And oh, then great. I'd have those other folks. I said, just keep going. And and it was funny because I remember thinking, these people are going to get bored. We're <laughs> doing the same thing every Monday. Mm-hmm. But what it is is just, Folks are having a conversation. Yeah. They're just like, we're noticing something that we didn't see the last time. What do you think the bike mayor's role moving forward will be? And how should we take the rein and pass it on to, you know, the next generation? Let me let me just share a little bit more about the bike mayor yeah. program. Please. So it's based in Amsterdam. Um, I don't really know exactly when it was that it started. But what I have really, really enjoyed is that there are networks all over the world, right? So right. India has just taken off with this bike mayor project. They have to have their own division. If you go on the website, there's a box that is just India, right? So I belong to the North American group and also the Latin American group. So what's really, really amazing there Mm -hmm. is these folks that are just like very Eurocentric and Denmark and Amsterdam, those things are absolutely wonderful, but you need to see what's happening in Mexico. What's Well, we know what's been going on in Colombia for a long time, mm-hmm. but folks really, so when, when we're on those calls, which is, first of all, I think it's amazing how they're able to find the best time for the majority of us to have a conversation. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And yes, I have the opportunity to do this, but cool. it is amazing. Mm-hmm. We are all fighting the same fight. Mm. In North America, three or four folks from Canada, and then what's really interesting that in the United States that there are only five bike mayors. Only five. In the whole country? Yes, and all of us are women. Okay, actually, that's a good stat. Mm-hmm. Um, and hands down to the ladies, yeah. for sure. And, and the you know, I wasn't, some people self-nominate. You guys were the ones that recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, you do need to, you know, have like some reason as to why, but it's it's basically you decide what it is that you want to do. Right. They also have a junior bike mayor program now, too. Oh, for youth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so... They say, you know, it's like a two-year term or whatever, but it's just kind of up to whomever. You kind of have what your platform is, but I'm going to be very honest. They're not looking for 65-year-old white men. This is change makers that are going to be able to introduce biking or are doing things a little bit differently because mm-hmm. that's kind of the messaging that they want to do. So I have to confess, I was just like, oh my God, all this stuff is happening around the world. All the yeah. world bike forums and things like that. And, you know, I was drawn, I was 
bought into that it, everything's happening in Europe or in this country. It's basically folks that are wanting to share their love of biking. Really, that's that's kind of what it is. But you need to talk to people about it. You need to be talking about biking. And since I pretty much do that every day, it was easier. That was Galen Mook interviewing Vivian Ortiz, bike mayor of Boston. Next, Ruthie Woodring on shipping bikes to Haiti. I'm with a frequent guest here on Bike Talk, Ruthie Woodring. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. And thank you. Where are you? I'm in Kentucky at my family's place. I'm uh, taking care of my brother's goats and other animals for a couple of weeks while he and his family are, are on family vacation in Honduras where my in-laws are from. Very good. And simultaneously, you are orchestrating a shipment of bikes to Haiti? Yeah. So I started collecting bikes for a community in Trinidad that I was connected with in July of 2019. In the thick of that, I was approached by a couple of people from an organization called Sakala Haiti, uh, Daniel Tilius and Nancy Young. Daniel, he, he and some friends started this organization outside Port-au-Prince like I want to say like around 2007, maybe he and Nancy do this youth organization there. And in Sakala, they do community gardens and they're trying to collect compost in Cire Soleil. And Daniel and Nancy were like, hey, pedal people, they collect compost by bicycle. Let's go visit them and see how they do it. Maybe we can you know, get some ideas for our project in Haiti. And so they came and visited pedal people. They rode around with me on my route one day and uh, Daniel held the trailer and stuff. And during the course of that day, I had, I talked with them about my project collecting bikes for Trinidad. And they're like, well, if you want to send any bikes to Haiti, we'd love to have them for our project. And I said, well, let me just finish one project at a time. Um, so that was 2019. And then in the fall of 2020, we shipped those bikes to Trinidad. That project took probably like another, I don't know, year and a half to sort of wrap up. And then, so now it's what, it's 2022, it's three years later, and I've still been collecting bikes. Bikes just kind of come my way. And so I've got about a hundred bikes that I've been trying to get to Port-au-Prince, to City Soleil, to Sakala. But because of the situation in Haiti right now, shipping is extremely difficult. Like ports were closed. We were supposed to ship the bikes in September. We had a date. Daniel was actually in the United States and he was coming to my house, to the bike lab, to the places where the bikes and stuff were. He was on his way there. We had a shipping date to ship out of Boston, but um, the shipper canceled like that morning. Armed agents closed the ports. And well, I don't know what the current situation is, but I know it's just really difficult to, to get to ship things into Port-au-Prince. Your day job is also <laughs> bikes making my money I do pedal people to make money and then the bike lab and other like bike collecting projects is sort of like on the side so pedal people when I'm not in Kentucky I'm living in Northampton Massachusetts in 2002 20 years ago my friend Alex Jarrett and I started this trash hauling business on bicycle with bicycle trailers so that's what I've been doing the last 20 years pedal people is a worker-owned cooperative there's 25 of us I think around that own the business, do the routes, trash, recycling, compost, lots of other things. You can check out, just see our website or do a web search for pedal people and lots of stuff will come up. Um, so that was why Daniel and Nancy contacted me because they found pedal people online. That's why they contacted pedal people because they found us online when they were looking at 
Falco's collection by bike. Their organization does a whole lot of different things involving Haiti. Yeah, Sakala is based in Cité Soleil outside Port-au-Prince. They work with youth. They have community gardens. They have after school or like sports programs. They do some tutoring and and so when you said that you were, had donated a shipment of bikes to Trinidad, they just saw the opportunity. It's not like they're in the business of shipping bikes to Haiti. They've never done that before. I think it's hard to get bikes. That day that we were riding around, we stopped by the bike lab where I had a big collection of bikes. There was probably about 75 bikes at the bike lab at that time. So when I told them about all my different methods, some nefarious of collecting unused bikes, they're like, oh, well, if you keep on collecting, you know, if you, if you have more, if this is something that you, you can do and you ever have any bikes you, you don't want or more than you know what to do with this, let us know. Um, yeah, collecting bikes is the easy part. It's getting them somewhere that's the hard part. Yeah, that's what I learned with the Trinidad Project. Bike Lab is your weekly bike workshop. Yeah, it's like Bike Kitchen, whatever. It's every weekend, every Saturday, there's open hours where people can come by, drop in, learn to fix your bike or just borrow tools or chat it up with bike-minded people in my friend Paige's basement or her backyard. I think I've read research about how impactful a bike can be in a person's life. Do you have data on that? I don't have any data, but from my experience in Trinidad, I could say that the impact can be really great, but also if there's no infrastructure to support it, the bikes can just, you know, one broken thing and and the bike is sort of in disrepair, it's unusable. It's hard to keep a bike functional in some um, circumstances where you don't have what you need for you know, spare parts or whatever. You know, something gets broken, it gets cannibalized, and then you have lots of cannibalized bikes and a few working bikes. But, you know, we do the best we can with what we have. <laughs> the ironic thing about me talking about Sakala and the whole relationship with them. So the reason I talk about this is because like, I know once I looked online, like Bikes for Haiti, and it talked about this group in the United States that was all excited about collecting bikes and sending them to Haiti. But what their partners in Haiti really wanted was the money. And, you know, they just needed money more than they needed bikes. And so I talk about this relationship with Sakala because they're the ones that approached me saying, we want bikes. We could really use the bikes. We need some bikes. I don't know if irony is the right word, but what has evolved with this situation. So we were going to ship to Sakala in September of 2022, this year. And that fell through because um, the situation in Haiti and because the ports, getting bikes into port is so difficult, like even shipping to Trinidad, the costs and the complications on the US end were fine, no big deal. But once they got to Trinidad, once they got to port, getting them through customs and inland shipping and all that, getting them through customs was like a real challenge. So what's happened with the Haiti project is because the ports have been closed, we sort of gave up on trying to ship. I've talked with some like NGOs like Partners in Health and Build Health International from Eastern Mass that ship containers to Haiti. And there was an idea that we might ship some in with one of their containers. But a couple of weeks ago, when I talked to someone from one of those organizations, they said they hadn't been able to ship any of their medical supplies into Haiti for like four months or something like that. So getting these bikes there is a challenge. So what came up is a friend from Massachusetts, a friend Kale. He knows somebody who knows somebody. His name is 
Ray Thackeray. He's a boat captain of this little organization called International Rescue Group that I think he and some sailing buddies started, I don't know, six or seven years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And they're like retired boat captains that take aid where it's needed as they can. So he has a 97 foot sailboat with diesel engine. He's been planning a trip to Haiti to take medical supplies and other things. And he said he had room for bikes. We asked if he could fit an eight foot by eight foot by eight foot cubes worth of bikes, which I think would probably be about 60 bikes. And he said, yeah, he can take it. So he's actually sailing to an island off the south coast of Haiti, the opposite side of the bay where Port-au-Prince is. He's sailing to Ilavash, a place that he has a relationship with. So it's not like a customs port. And then the situation in Ilavash is pretty calm compared to Port-au-Prince from what I have been told. Um, so yeah, so he said, yeah, okay, I can, I can take those bikes. His ship is in, it was in Yucatan last I knew. He's planning on sailing to Norfolk, Virginia. So we're trying to get the bikes from Massachusetts down to Norfolk. He's picking up some supplies for other people too, maybe some solar panels or something like that. And then he's sailing to Ilavash. I spent the first half of this show talking about Sakala in Port-au-Prince, but unable to get the bikes there. So now we're sending the bikes to this island off the South Coast. But then to get them from this island to Port-au-Prince, it's just not worth the trouble. It's not worth the risk, the risk of like being hijacked and all those things for my partners for Sakala in Port-au-Prince. So there's a community center in Ilavash in the island that's very excited to have the bikes. And so, okay, I guess they'll go there <laughs> if we can get them there. Now, the latest thing with trying to get them there is that one of the crew members of this sailboat from International Rescue Group, his passport, he's European and his passport has expired. He's like the chief engineer of the sailboat and he can't dock in Norfolk, Virginia without his passport to load up the bikes and things. But I think that paperwork situation will hopefully be resolved. We're hoping sometime by the end of January or end of February, the bikes will ship. Um, and we're also gonna be trying to raise some money to cover diesel costs. It's sailboat, but with diesel. And the captain said he estimated it would take 1,000 gallons of diesel to go from Yucatan to Norfolk to Haiti. About half the trip, he says, is sailing with the, the Gulf Stream winds and the other half will be burning diesel. So it's about $5,000 for the whole trip, but other people shipping things are paying about half of that. So I think we're trying to raise about $2,500 to pay for the bikes. And we're going to make a GoFundMe page or something, but we haven't yet. But if anyone listening to this is inspired to contribute, you can contact me through the Pedal People Bike Lab webpage. All my contact information is there. That's if you go to Pedal People and look up Bike Lab or just type in pedal people slash bike lab. My contact information is there and um, Kayla and I are going to make a, a way that people can donate easily to raise some funds for this. This was not how it was supposed to go. <laughs> no. And I'm kind of like, okay, is Ilavash, is that like the best place for these bikes? Do they have the infrastructure there? It's actually right across the bay or the water from Lakai, which is a bigger city and they have a bunch of the bikes might end up there. I think there's like bike shops or stuff there. I don't think there's motorized vehicles on Ilavash. Don't quote me on that, but I thought I read that recently. But there's about 20,000 people that live there. If you had known 
what would happen? Would you have done all the work that you've done? I, I don't know. I like collecting bikes. <laughs> I like dreaming of bikes having another life somewhere. I like dreaming of these dusty bikes that are in the basements of American homes. I like dreaming of them being loved and ridden by someone somewhere, anywhere, this country, anywhere. Are you going to do this again? <laughs> My gut reaction to that's no, but of course I am. <laughs> I don't know. Bikes come my way and because I'm a bicycle power trash hauler. So pedal people, customers, people in town know me. Like word is already out that I collect bikes and I want your bike. <laughs> so I can't really like not collect bikes. Um, yeah, I, I, I like collecting bikes. Good ones. As someone, a friend of mine tipped me off that there were some abandoned bikes somewhere along the bike path or road somewhere. And he showed me a picture and I was like, mm, I don't really, they're not going to really be useful for my project. And he said something like, wow, you can afford to be picky. And I thought, well, it's not like being picky about a certain style of car or the latest fashion and clothing or the newest iPhone. It's like, you know, it's not worth the time and energy to send something that's a poor quality bike that's going to break and be unfixable. So yeah, I'm trying to just only send stuff that's really worth it. So in other words, like I'm not sending rusty department store bikes. All right. So if anyone has a good quality bike, they want to give away for some future undisclosed place <laughs> that really needs it, they'll find you and they'll find your GoFundMe and they'll send you their bike and all that. Yeah. Especially people in the Northampton and Western Massachusetts area. Good. Thank you once again for coming on Bike Talk. Thanks, Nick. I love talking about bikes. <laughs> That was Ruthie Woodring. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike. 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 Oh, catch yourself